Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Well, sometimes I have a hard time buying Christmas gift for my wife. Anybody else like that? Any of you guys have a hard time with that? I guess I could ask the wives. How many of you husbands have? Uh, I mean, I enjoy buying clothes for my wife. I do. But I have a real hard time buying clothes that she will actually wear. Okay? And uh, she's really good about that. And uh, then uh, I have jewelry. Sometimes I see these pretty necklaces. And I, and I bought her a necklace. And what was kind of funny is that sometime this last year, we, we kind of pulled out necklaces and looked. And, and like three of the necklaces I'd bought her over the past number of years were almost all identical. <laughs> it was nice looking, though. So I got it for her again. <laughs> Every now and then, my wife uh, will hand me a wrapped up present and say, here, put this under the tree and give it to me on Christmas. Now, that one works. That's always a good one. But a a number of years back, I I gave her a Christmas gift that I would say was a real home run. Okay, it was a home run. Actually, it was better than that. It was a a grand slam. Okay, better than that even. It's actually a walk-off grand slam home run. Boston Red Sox against the Yankees, right? I mean, it was that kind of gift, okay? And as I I, I pondered giving, how was I going to give it to her? Because it it was a huge gift. And I... You know, how do you put this gift under the tree? Trying to figure that out, you know, and, and how do I want to do this and how am I going to... Uh, well, I finally figured out how to do it. And uh, do you want to know what it was? You sure? Okay. Well, what it was, uh, was I, I, I got a box, every size, and I, and I put a note in the box. And the note said... I'm buying you a round-trip ticket back to Kansas City, Missouri for a week to go spend with your family, and I'll take care of the kids and the house. Anyway, you don't have to worry about a thing. And, and that was the, just about the best gift I've ever given you, right? Yeah. And so, um, but what was interesting about it is I thought about the gift. The gift was way too big to fit in the package, right? The gift itself, I mean, we're talking airliners here thousands of miles in time. Uh, so I had to, you know, obviously write it out like on a coupon and, and give it to her. Uh, well, today, as we think about what God gave us at Christmas, there is a sense in which we, if we look at the package that the gift came in, the package doesn't really look nearly big enough for the gift that was given. And so we, with that in mind, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, part of the Christmas story that we always take a look at around this time of year, Matthew chapter 1. If you are using the Bible that's in the pew there, it's page 1111, and it's no pews again, I said it again. The, the Bibles that are there in the chairs, under the chairs, okay? And we encourage you to follow along in the Bible with us, it'll, it'll help you uh, to understand what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. 
Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, a couple things would probably help us understand this. One is that uh, in this culture, when a couple was betrothed, is really much stronger even than our idea of engagement. When a couple was betrothed, they were considered to be legally married. Okay, so it was binding. When you got betrothed, it was binding. And then at some point down the line, you would have your, your marriage ceremony and then the consummation of the, the marriage physically. Okay, and so they were in this betrothal period. And Joseph gets word, and we don't know how he got it. We don't know if Mary told him. We don't know if somebody else told him. But he, he gets word that Mary is expecting a baby, and they haven't been together. Okay? That's a hard thing. And so he's thinking here that Mary has been unfaithful to him, uh, and, and now she's having a baby. And he's, so he, is what he says here is, I mean, apparently he loved Mary. He didn't want to make a public example. He didn't want to make a big deal. So he, it says he was thinking about putting her away secretly. And putting her away is a terminology used to describe the divorce, okay? That he was going to put her away as his wife and do it quietly, you know, try not to make a big deal. I can't help but think that Joseph must have been heartbroken, right? And yet you can see his love for her because he doesn't want to, to hurt her, even though he is probably feeling deeply hurt. So let's, let's continue. Verse 20. But while he thought about these things... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So now he has an angel show up and saying, listen, this is a miraculous thing. God has done this. She hasn't been unfaithful to you. This is something that God has miraculously done. And then he continues and he says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And, and so this, this name Jesus meant that Jehovah is salvation or God is salvation. God saves. And so naming that because he's going to save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph, you know, being a good Jewish man, heard that and knew what God was saying, what the angel was saying, and that, that, that his, their son was going to be the Messiah. The promised Messiah who was going to come and redeem God's people from their sins. And then the angel continues. Oh, excuse me, the angel doesn't. The, the uh, author, Matthew, does. So all this was done, verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so uh, Matthew here tells us that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, and it goes on and talks more about it. But that prophecy is given 700 plus years earlier. We, we saw last week, didn't we, about how the prophecies were given and, and God fulfills them. Here is another one. Some 700 years before, he says that a virgin is going to conceive and bear this son. And but something very significant about, the, about him. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And, and, you know, we pick names for our children. And more often than not, it's because we like the name and the way it sounds, right? Uh, if we're wise, and most of us do, we also look up the meaning to make sure it doesn't mean anything really strange, right? Uh, 
But typically, uh, and this, this is not true for everybody, but typically we aren't choosing our names because of the meanings. But in the Bible, in this culture all the time, people chose names because of the meanings and we're trying to communicate something. And so they say, his name will be called Emmanuel. And it says that if you translate that word Emmanuel, it means God with us. Now, that's a pretty big thing, isn't it? You know, uh, I mean, my name, Walter, means mighty warrior or conqueror. My, my middle name, Edward, means guardian. And I like both of those meanings in my role. But it ain't Walter means God is with us. That's a different deal, isn't it? God is with us. Now, let's go to the Gospel of John, page 1220, because John talks about this in, in a little bit of a different way, though he, he gives us some more insight into this. Uh, John chapter 1, page 1220 in the Bible there in the chairs. And we'll start right in the beginning in verse number 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, so what in the world is John talking about here? The Word, the Word, okay? Well, the Word... Uh, the culture he was speaking into, the Greek culture there, when they referred to the word like this, they were talking about this rational mind that, that ruled over the universe, so, you know, rational mind. And so John here is taking that, says, you guys, you know, the word, I want you to know something, the word is God. That's who the word is. It's the, it's, he's the God of the Bible, okay? So he, he's, he's linking up this rational mind that un- rules the universe with the God of the Bible. But we see something specific here about him. Not only was he the Word, and the Word was with God, and yet the Word was God. So how can he be with God and also be God? I mean, once again, I think about myself. If I start talking about myself to you in that way, right? That, you know, I want you to know that I'm, I'm, I am with Walter. And I am Walter. <laughs> right? You say, it's straight. But so what's going on here is, is he's being identified. The word, whoever the word here is, is being identified with God, that he is God, and yet somehow that he's distinct from God. Um, and, and I'm not going to go through the Bible and show this, but what we're talking about here is the Trinity, aren't we? The fact that we have one God that we worship, and he exists as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God. Three persons, uh, over my head, to really understand how it works. But the Bible makes it clear that's the way it is. And so we're, so we're talking about a member of the Trinity here, the Word. Uh, and the Word also is the idea of Word expresses something, doesn't it? Our words express and come from our hearts, Jesus says. And so here, somehow rather this, and he is a person of the Trinity, because in verse number two, what's the first word in verse number two? Grammar lesson, warning, grammar lesson. Verse number two is, what's the first word? And that indicates that the word is a person, one of the Trinity. Okay, the same thing in verse number three. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Okay, so he, John has gone back all the way into eternity, talk about this person of the Godhead, person of the Trinity, the word, 
who created everything there is to create. Now, in the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, writing about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he says this about him. Go ahead and put that up there if you would. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. Can you get that up there? So we can read along. It's not up there, is it? Oh, it is up there. There we go. For by him, this is talking about, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, both visible and invisible. All right, so who created everything that's been created? Was it the Word or was it Jesus Christ? Trick question, right? Because they are one and the same. Okay, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God created everything that exists. Now let's go back here to John chapter 1, verse number 14. John says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But, and the Word became flesh. Uh, God with us. Now, this became flesh is where we get the word, the incarnation, incarnation, okay, the, the carnal, the idea of flesh and, and coming into flesh, okay? So the doctrine of incarnation is what we're talking about here. The fact that God actually became a man. Now, that's a big deal. You know, and as we, we think about it and we understand what the Bible says about this, um, it tells us, as we, we study through, if we want to chase the verses through, that, that Jesus Christ, from the moment he was conceived, was 100% God and 100% man. He didn't give up being either. Some, now, how does God do that? Well, God can do that stuff because God is God. But he comes down and it's all intertwined, his, his, his being God and his being man. And, and this is such an important doctrine, so essential to who he is and what he did that actually in the scriptures we see that this, what you believe about this issue becomes a test of whether or not you're even a Christian. In 1 John chapter 4, uh, go to, actually, yeah, 1 John chapter 4, says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not God. So the Bible is quite clear that Jesus was proclaimed to be the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. And if you get that doctrine wrong, you're not of God. 2 John chapter 9 says this, whoever transgresses uh, and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So is this an important doctrine? Is the incarnation an important doctrine? You guys, you guys are just kind of like today. Extremely important because we cannot have a personal relationship with God and have our sins forgiven and have eternal life and be a follower of Christ if we do not understand who he really was. That is a crucial part of being able, you know, because who are you placing your faith in? And see, this is one of those things where doctrine matters because this is where uh, Mormons, who, and many of whom are awesome, great people, they deviate because their doctrine says Jesus was created, a created being. Jehovah's Witnesses, the same way. 
And so the Bible makes a big deal out of this doctrine to the point of saying, if you don't get this one right, you don't have a relationship with God. So God becomes a man. 100% God, 100% man at the same time. This means that God became one of us. One of us. And what I want to do is just take a little bit of time here and think about what this would mean. How, how can a person be God and man, and what would that experience have been like? Now, uh, if we go to Philippians chapter 2 and probably some other places in Scripture, we could put this together. The Bible tells us that when God became a man, when the Son of God, you know, became the man Jesus, and, and permanently and forever. By the way, he is forever now, human being, as well as God. But when he became that, he chose to limit the use of his abilities as God so that he could live like one of us. He still knew everything, but he chose not to be conscious of knowing everything. He could still do anything, but he chose not to use those powers. Be very clear, all through the Gospel of John, he says, I, I do what my Father shows me to do. So he wasn't acting independently. So he became very much one of us to live life like one of us, to respond to the Holy Spirit's promptings like one of us. Huge difference. Because he was God, he had no sin nature. Other than that, like every one of us. And I would say to you that having a sin nature is not part of what it means to be human. Because in the beginning, man was not created with sin nature. So sin nature is not a requirement to be human. However, all of us have sin nature because we've all inherited it, right? And it's like a, a spiritual disease that has infected humanity. But Jesus did not have that disease. So let's ponder this. What would it have been like for Jesus? And, and what I did is I wrote down some questions. By the way, uh, are you guys um, able to think this morning? Stretch a little bit. Think about these things. So think, we talk about God became a man, 100% God, 100% man, chooses to limit his use of his divine attributes, except as his father told him to use them. And, and so he's going through life. And, and what is the world like around him? What's the world like around you? It's a sin-cursed world, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the creation itself is cursed, and, and the people who we live with are sinners just like we are. So, but think about these questions. Did Jesus ever make a mistake? Now, how can you say that? Is it a sin to make a mistake? No. Remember, I mean, think about this. Do you think he was ever adding up his numbers when he was learning his numbers and forgot to carry the one? Well, remember, he set aside the, the use of his divine attributes, right? He wasn't living all-knowing. He was only knowing what... There's a good question. Did Jesus come out of the womb reading and understanding? No. Like us, he had to learn. He had to learn to read and learn to write and learn to understand. He had to learn to crawl and to walk just like we do. And, and so there's no reason to say Jesus never made a mistake. He, he may very well have made a mistake because don't we all make mistakes? And that's not because we're sinful. That's because we live in a sin-cursed world, all right? Um, 
Did his body, including his brain, always function perfectly? Because his brain is part of his body, right? A brain is a physical thing. And brains, anybody besides my brain have glitches on a regular basis? And why is that? Because we live in a sin-cursed world, a world that's been impacted by sin. Something just, you know, malfunctions. Okay, how about this? Did Jesus ever walk from one end of his house to the other and try to remember what he went there to get? Well, he he didn't live to be real old, so maybe he didn't. (laughs) Um, But once again, see, he was a human being like us, living in a physical body and had set aside his divine. And none of these things are simple. Did he ever, when his dad was, his his earthly adopted father was uh, a carpenter, so he probably worked with him. Did he ever cut a board too short? Did he ever hit his thumb with a hammer? And if he did, what came out of his mouth? Ah, see, now we're starting to actually talk about something, aren't we? See, because it wouldn't surprise me at all that Jesus, as he's learning, hit his thumb with a hammer. But what came out of his mouth was not sinful. He didn't get angry and curse. Because deep down inside of him, there was no sin. And so it didn't come out when he reached that place. Okay, here's the one you you may not want to think about, but I want you to to think, did Jesus ever find a woman sexually attractive? Well, is there anything wrong with sex that God created? And did God make us to be attracted sexually? And we can be, we don't have to sin with that, see? Well, we do sin with that, don't we? But see, Jesus had no lust. And so he, he never went there. But doesn't mean that he wouldn't have seen experience. What I want you to see is that Jesus very much one of us. He, he's lived where we live and experienced much of what we experience. So, and so let's talk about why did Jesus do this? Why did the Son of God become a man? Let's take our Bibles and turn to uh, John chapter 14, page 1242. The first reason that God became a man is so that we could know what God is like. I mean, when we think about what God's like, and he's a spirit, we can't see him, and so, you know, we try to understand him and figure that stuff out. But God became a man so we could see somebody and see how do they live, how do they respond. And, and, and so the first reason God became a man is so we can know what God is like. And Jesus pointed this out to his disciples in John chapter 14 and verse number 8. Jesus is getting ready to leave and they got questions for him. And here's one of the questions. John 14 verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Show us God the Father. Show us God. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus said, you want to know what God is like? Look at me. Look at me. Okay, so what do we learn about what God is like? Well, one of the things we learn is that God hates sin. How do we know God hates sin? Because Jesus hated sin, all right? 
So therefore, we know that God hates sin. Uh, it's quite clear. He, he, man, he, he had righteous anger, you remember, and drove the people out of the temple who had turned the temple into a money-making deal instead of a worshiping God deal. You remember that? Hates sin. Uh, how did he treat the self-righteous, hypocritical religious leaders of his day? Man, he was in their face. He didn't give them any slack, okay? He hates sin. He hates sin because of what it does to us. Sin always damages and sin ultimately destroys. He hates sin. He showed us that. And, and he came into this world at great personal cost to himself because he hated sin that much. It had to be dealt with. Okay? So God became a man so that we could know what God is like. The second reason God became a man is so that we might be uh, saved from the penalty and power of sin. Turn to the book of Hebrews. That's page 1374. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse number 9. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, and by that means he, okay, angels are spirit beings, that he came down below that and became a human being. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. This is why. So he came down this to suffer death. And we see him crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. That means Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for everyone. And why did he die? He died to save us from the penalty of our sins. What is the penalty of our sins? I mean, every one of us have gone our own way. We've all done our own thing. We've all set ourselves up to be our own Lord. Uh, we've been selfish. We've, we've broken, you know, so many of God's commandments. And the penalty for that is death, and it's eternal death in a place called hell. Separation from God forever in hell. That's the penalty of sin. Well, Jesus came down and as lived, remember he had no sin nature. He lives this perfect and sinless life, fulfilling all of God's rules perfectly. And then as he dies on the cross, no sins of his own to pay for. God is able to take my sins, your sins, the sins of the world and place them on Jesus. And he dies paying the penalty for us so that we don't have to. Look down in verse 14. It says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He took on flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And so there's a spiritual dynamic, not only being forgiven for sins, but, but we have come by nature under the power of, of Satan. And, and, and we have rebelled against God and lived in that realm. Jesus died for us, his body dying for us, he broke that hold to where now when we receive Christ as Savior, not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, we are also saved from the power of sin. Now we can make a different choice. Before you came to Christ, you were stuck. But after you come to Christ, he comes into your life and changes and, and he's broken the controlling power of sin. You can make a better choice. By the way, that sounds a lot like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? The shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, the penalty of sin, the, the body dying for us as we, we eat the bread to remind us that he's freed us from the controlling 
power of sin. So God became a man so we'd know what God is like and to save us from the penalty and power of sin. And the third thing he came for us that we would know that God understands us and our situation. Have you ever found yourself in a really hard place and it seemed like nobody around you understood and then someone came along who had been where you had been? Someone who understood it's like a breath of fresh air, isn't it? Somebody gets it and able to help you. Well, this is why Jesus came. Turn here, chapter 2, to verse number 17. It says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, us, the other human beings, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, this means he, he interceded for us and his shed blood Propitiation, nice word, if you can say it. It means satisfactory payment for sins. Okay, so we had to do that. And then this says, verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus knows what it's like for you to be tempted. Look over in chapter four, verse 14. One page over. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, by the way, we have a great high priest. We don't need any other priests. Jesus is our priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This means let, let's hang on to what we believe and what we say about what we believe. Jesus is Lord and we are following him. Hang on, stick with it. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted with sin. We could go and look at it, uh, but once again, even all the other things we talked about today, he knows what all of those things are like that oftentimes produce a sinful response in us. He knows what that's like. Do you know Jesus knows what it's like to feel guilty and to carry a heavy burden of sin? I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I bet there's a bunch of you here today, right now, who are struggling with sin of some sort and you just carrying this heavy, heavy burden. I wanna say Jesus knows what that's like. Not because he ever sinned, but as he hung on the cross, he took that guilt. He took that heavy burden of sin. He knows exactly where you're at today because he has felt it. He has experienced it. And he knows what it's like to actually be separated from uh, God because of his sin. And, and this is a hard one to get my head around and I never have sufficiently got my head around it. But do you remember when Jesus hung on the cross and, and God puts the sin on him? And, and it says what? That at some point, Jesus, who is 100% God and 100% man, cries out to God and says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somehow, some way, he experienced this separation because of sin. And, and he knows even better than you and I do because we only know it on one side of the equation. He knows it on both sides of the equation, what that separation meant and what it's like. You know what encourages me so much is Jesus experienced Experience that for us. Why have you forsaken me? And he says to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I've been there 
so that you don't have to. He came that we could know that he understands us and where we're at. So what do we do with this? How, how do we respond to this, the incarnation, God becoming a man, Jesus, this whole thing at Christmas time? Well, two things we really need to do. One is we need to give our lives to him, and then we need to live our lives for him. And, and we give our life to him in this way. When we come face to face with and understand that, that we have sinned, I have sinned against God. And, and, and not just once, but repeatedly. We've sinned against God. Our sins have separated us from God. And if we die in that condition, we stay separated from God forever in a place called hell. But that's why Jesus came. He came and, and as I already said, lived that sinless, perfect life, dying on the cross. And as he dies on the cross, God puts the, the guilt for my sin and your sins, sins of the whole world on him. He dies paying that penalty. He rises from the dead three days later. And, and God says to us, if you will just... Be honest here and admit and, and, and acknowledge that you have sinned and it's separated, you know, us. You and God, you're separated. And you'll believe that Jesus, who he said he was, and he did what the Bible says he did for you. That by faith you can then receive Christ as Savior. You, you, you give your life to him. Say, okay, I, I give up. My own ways haven't worked. I can't fix this problem. I, I, I open myself up to you. You're the Lord and you're the one who can save me and receive Christ as Savior. The Bible says when you do that, that every sin is forgiven. Every sin you've ever committed, ever will commit, every sin forgiven. You have eternal life, and when uh, this life is over, you go to be with the Lord in heaven, and right now, he, he, God himself moves in. He, he comes inside you and begins changing you for good from the inside out, freeing you from that power of sin that has controlled you. But it starts with making that decision to receive Christ as Savior. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that here this morning. So let's all just bow our heads and close our eyes at this point in time, if you would. If you're here today and you say, yeah, you know, I don't think I've ever really settled that once and for all. Hey, maybe you believe in God or you have, but you realize I've never really settled this. I've never come to that point where I finally said, okay, God, here I am. I've sinned against you. My sins have separated from you. And, and I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. And I want to receive him as Savior. And if that's where you're at today and you said, yeah, I want to make that decision, then I'm going to ask you in just a moment to pray along with me. And don't pray out loud. Just pray silently. God knows what you're thinking, what's in your heart. So if you want to receive Christ as Savior and settle this issue once and for all, Pray along with me now, silent in your heart. Say, God, I know that I have sinned. I know that my sins have separated me from you. I know if I die like that, I'll go to hell. I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I believe he died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And right now, the very best I know how, I receive Jesus as my Savior. I accept his payment for the penalty for my sins. And I accept the gift of eternal life.
Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed still, please. No one looking around. I would like to pray for you. If you just received Christ as Savior, I would like to pray for you that God would make it very real in your life and help you to go forward from here and growing in Him. And so if you just prayed with me, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Nobody looking around but me. So I want to see who you are so I can pray for you. So nobody else looking around. If you just prayed with me to receive Christ as Savior, would you just show me with an uplifted hand? Just put a hand up. Thank you. I see those. Yes, I see those. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. Yes, I see that one too. Thank you. Father, thank you so much for these people who have prayed today to receive Christ as Savior. I pray, Father, that you will just make that such a a real decision for them, that you'll help them to understand the decision and what it means. Pray, Lord, even that they will get connected with us in, in, in ways where we can help them to understand even better what it means, what this decision means in their lives. And so thank you so much for these people who've done that. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.